Here we are at another episode of Art of Accomplishment. And before we get started, I know many of you are looking for people to do this work with. And we've created a way for you to find those people. We have several complimentary workshops that give you the opportunity to taste our brand of experiential teachings and meet people who are interested in the same thing. To reserve your spot, visit view.life slash explore or click the link in the show notes. I am under no illusions, right? I cannot make amends to the man I killed. I cannot make amends to his family. And that still needs to be a North Star, right? In my world, in my life, what I, what I feel like. And so I can spend my time hating myself or I can spend my time helping to create a world where little kids don't kill other little kids. Welcome to The Art of Accomplishment, where we explore how deepening connection with ourselves and others leads to creating the life we want with enjoyment and ease. I'm Brett Kistler, here today with my co-host, Joe Hudson. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about fear. It's one of my favorite topics, and we've covered it from many perspectives, from parachuting off of cliffs to having difficult conversations in the boardroom and showing up authentically in relationships. But what if the fear you're facing is the fear of life imprisonment for murder? That's not something we've really touched on in this podcast. But you're in luck, because today Joe and I have the pleasure of speaking with Emile DeWeaver, who has been there and is here to tell us all about it. That is the most interesting introduction I have ever had, and I've had some good introductions. (laughs) I was I was trying not to laugh too hard, or 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 have it hurt, and then once you laughed, I was like, "All right, good. Now we get to we get to laugh at that. That's great." That's the beautiful thing about about human laughter. Like when you come out of the other end, you can laugh and it does feel good to laugh because you know what you survived. Right. And you know that it's not a laughing matter, um, but you know that like your world's a better place for it and you can make the world a better place for it. So there still is joy in it. So, yeah, let's laugh at that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Let's dive into it. I dropped a little bit of a bomb there to get our listeners hooked into the episode, so I hope we have their attention now. And let's give you the floor, Emil. Tell us how you came to be here today and what you'd like to tell us about your journey with fear. Yeah, um, those are all big questions. I kind of just start by just kind of introducing the context behind your introduction, and that is, you know, since I was 18 years old, I was serving uh, a life sentence, 67 years to life in prison uh, for murder and attempted murder. At the time... I was basically a homeless kid on the street. I was in the, uh, I was selling drugs. So, you know, I was involved in like uh, drug wars in Oakland when Oakland was definitively like the Oakland that you read about in the news and feel like, you know, maybe uncomfortable to walk the streets at night. Sorry to interrupt. What years was that? What what years were? Uh, 1997, 1997, 1998. In fact, like. Um, what part of Oakland? 106 in MacArthur. So like uh, back then it was called like the Rolling 100. So it was like. I lived on 47th and San Leandro in those years. Okay. So you yeah. are familiar. So I know. I, I mean, know. It, it wasn't I am familiar. that many years before 97 that like Oakland was like one of the murder capitals of the world. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, 4th of July, New Year's Eve, there'd be bullets landing on our on our rooftops. I mean, I have a lot of visceral memories from that time. I mean, and your, your part of the neighborhood was worse than my part of it. I mean, my part of the neighborhood was not good, but mm-hmm. it was worse where you were at least Everybody in my neighborhood would say that, that, the, yeah. that where you lived was worse. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. 
that's where I come from. I come from a lot of different places, but that's another podcast. And yeah, so like I was tried for murder. I was convicted because like I did it. Um, I was sentenced to 67 years to life. And my relationship to fear were like, I, I kind of like think about my relationships to fear in like three different stages. And that's like before I got arrested and also sometime near after. And that was like, you know, I grew up in a, in a hyper-masculine culture, in a very abusive household, uh, where fear wasn't actually allowed. I put that in quotes because there's no way to disallow fear. Like, it was definitionally a part of being a man, a strong man, to not be afraid. And the problem for that, for me, was like, you know, you know I have some muscles now, but I was a pretty small kid. I was always afraid. I was the youngest of two of, of like three of us boys or brothers and an older sister. But brothers were kind of big and I was always afraid. But I was messaged that this wasn't okay. So that means I was also always ashamed. And so I was always hiding this and there was no way that I could authentically show up as myself in any situation because like it felt like I was hiding this thing that was very true about me that was saying that there was something that was wrong about me. And I discovered at a young age like the power of like anger and rage to like cover fear. I remember there was this time, my oldest brother, he's like four years older than me. And I have no chance in hell and like standing up to him physically, but he was kind of just, you know, bullying me as like big brothers do. And like, I reached a limit, not that like, not that I had like courage in any sense of the term. I had just really reached a limit and I went into this rage and I threw this deodorant at him. Uh, we were in a hotel room and it shattered against the, uh, he jumped behind the bed and it shattered against the window. And my dad, who was a pretty scary guy, like he was like five foot five, but he was like a really scary guy and he did not play, right? Like I would expect for him to skin my ass alive for something like that, right? But instead he had this look of pride on his face and he was like, yeah, I bet you'll leave Emil alone now. And like from that moment, I was like, oh, there's this way that I can one, cover up fear and cover up uh, this sense of inadequacy I have through anger, right? And like outbursts. And that was a genuine outburst, right? It's like, I don't feel like I've had many genuine outbursts in my life. I felt like after that moment, understanding that that was a source of like power and safety in a way that I could like not feel afraid and so not feel ashamed, I would manufacture anger and feed it and stoke it and stoke it and stoke it until I could like draw, drive myself to like move through this fear. And so my earliest relationships to fear was that of complete denial and rushing through it, right? Through it with anger. That of course ended in perhaps the most traumatic moment of my life uh, when I killed a man which like, let's be clear, it was much more traumatic for him and his family. But I'm like, you know, I'm speaking for myself. And like, that's something that, um, you know, 20 plus years later, I don't know that I've still recovered from fully. So I went to prison holding this, this like tragic act that I committed out of fear and uncontrolled anger manufactured up. I have a memory in my, so when I was first out of college, I taught Head Start in the Hayes Valley Projects in San Francisco. And I, re, and 
I remember the culture of no fear, right? And I, and I would say it wasn't just with the masculine. I, I saw it very in the feminine of that culture too. There was very little room for fear. And I remember even at that age with very little understanding, asking somebody about it, you know, saying like, nobody shows any fear here. And they said, look, if you show fear, you're prey. So you're either predator or prey. If you show fear, you're prey. You don't show fear. And I remember how much like that viscerally hit me. So I, I just want to say for the viewers to try to grok that, that helped me grok it. So I'm hoping that story helps grok it for other people, how important it was not to show fear. So sorry to interrupt. You were saying. No, um, I, were, and, and yeah, if I could like, you know, take a quick divergent path real quick to like please, respond yeah, to yeah. that story. I'm going to tell you something interesting that I discovered, right? So I spent most of my life, or most of my, even my juvenile life in like juvenile facilities, juvenile hall, youth authority, uh, like boot camps, things like that. And of course, I was always afraid there. I couldn't show it. And so I had this like pretend person that I was. I was like play acting hardcore, like the hardest method acting you have ever seen. Like I have never liked to fight. Fighting scares the shit out of me. But like, like no one could ever know that. And I had to be able to fight on a dime, right? And so I grew up in that environment pretending that I had no fear, pretending that I liked to fight, pretending that I welcomed violence, right? Yeah. And like as the system is kind of constructed, the same people I knew in juvenile hall, I would run into them in the county jail and I ran into them in prison and we became adults in our 30s and our 40s. And we kind of grew up and we grew out of that and we changed our relationship to fear. And then we started to have conversations with each other about our childhood. And it kind of come to find out everyone was pretending. (laughs) everyone was pretending in the name of survival saying that like if I don't do this pretend I won't be able to survive because other people are somehow different than me I'm somehow different because like I'm like this imposter in this thing I'm like afraid all the time I don't want to fight I don't want everybody was thinking that and acting on this pretend character that they think it thought they had to be to be safe not knowing we were all pretending yeah I have to say, this sounds a lot like a lot of boardrooms that I have been in. <laughs> there's, a whole, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of people who are anxious and scared, who are doing everything they can not to show it and not to react from it and trying to have the bravado and and they're scared the whole thing's going to go away. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's not, not too dissimilar. That's amazing. So you were at the part of the story where you you had this trauma, you killed – somebody and then you went to jail which seems to me like the number one place where you can't show fear like you were recreating this reality so what happened when you got to jail like what what occurred for you there i feel like my relationship to fear changed and i think it changed in stages the first one was i mean where where it lands is that traditional conception of fear and courage like like courage isn't the absence of fear it's like you know doing the right thing in the face of fear or functioning in the face of fear That's why I ended up landing. But where it actually started was, you know, the reality of like waking up in the morning, right? Like, because in the act, you know, you can numb yourself, right? You can force yourself through it. That's its own traumatic event to like force yourself through like uh, uh, something that you know you absolutely should not be doing. In the aftermath of that lives a lot of self-loathing, right? So for me, like I couldn't have the same relationship to fear of like, you know, I'm just going to 
work myself up into a rage and recklessly like move through it and I'm going to deny it existed because I could clearly see that that had resulted in like the most horrible thing I've ever done. So that didn't like quite work for me anymore, right? What was that? What was it? So there's obviously some people who did that in jail and then they kept with that technique, right? Like they, they're like, I learned that to overcome fear with anger worked and then they I created this heinous act and now I'm in jail and I'm going to keep on with that strategy. Whereas you were like, no, I'm not, I can't do that strategy anymore. What do you think is the difference between the people in jail who keep with the strategy and the people in jail who are like, yeah, that's not how I want to be. I feel like an important part of that answer to that question is luck. Yeah. There are a number of factors that coalesce that created that like impression for me right one was the feeling of utter disillusionment with my with my value system that like with this value system i have this is where it has brought me and it brought me there while my, while the mother of my child was pregnant and so my kid was born while i was on trial for murder i saw my kid through like a glass partition when they were born and i was struck by the reality that this child is going to grow up and one day someone's going to ask them what their father does for a living. And I was like, you know, junior high school dropout, drug dealer, uh, by society standards, like a murderer. Uh, And when I I say by society standards, because I don't believe in identifying a person based on the worst act they've ever committed, I did murder somebody. I am not a murderer. Right. And I think that that is a very important distinction. So I knew I like, you know, I was picturing this moment of when someone would ask my kid this one day. And I knew that, you know, either they were going to lie about it and be ashamed or they were going to tell the truth about it and be ashamed. But I knew that they were going to be ashamed. And I knew that with that shame might come some measure of hating me. And I knew from my relationship with my father, like I had already sensed on a level uh, that she can't hate me without hating herself. And I said she, but what I mean is they, because they're they're a trans person. But at the time I thought of them in those gender terms. And so I felt like I had like mortally crippled my kid in their first week of life. I felt like I had, (laughs) like they had just been bored and I'd failed them in every conceivable way. And that was a lot. You know, my dad did a, did a lot of things wrong, but from what he tried to do, like he had already instilled in me the value that there was nothing more important on this in this world than being a father. So that hit me really hard. And I was like in a state of sheer panic. And when that receded, I began to realize that one, they're not quite old enough to even know what a dad is or even what I did or what prison is. And so I felt like I grabbed hold of that. And I was like, you have until the time they are old enough to understand that to completely transform who you are. Right. And if you, I had determined, I was like, you know, I'm going to get out of prison. I'm going to write my way out of prison with his, which is his own story that like actually happened 21 years later. But I was like, even if I don't succeed at that, if I can at least show them, that it's never too late to build something. It's never too late to turn around and go in a different direction and create something for yourself. Then that, that at least can be my gift to them. 
So I think that was the big difference. Yeah, that's huge. I want to double click on something that you said, which is about the being defined as the worst thing that you've done. And I'm sure that there's somebody in who's listening who's like, wait, you're not allowed to let go of that shame of, of being a murderer. You, you're not allowed to like choose the definition of who you are, you know something wrangles in people when that happens. And, and at the same time, when I hear it, I know so much the truth of what you're saying, which is how we define ourselves is how we end up acting, right? If we think that we are, that our value is that we are smart, then we will go around acting like we're smart, maybe less likely to listen to people, more likely to be arrogant. Or if we go around thinking, oh, we are um, more important than other people, then that's how we're going to act. Or if we go around thinking we're less than other people, that's how we're going to act. And so to to take away the, the self-definition of murder, to me, is an incredibly important thing because it, it prevents it from happening again. It, it allows you the freedom away from an identity that's been put upon you or that you put upon yourself. Either way, you get some freedom from it. But that's my interpretation of it. And I'm wondering what is your, like what makes it important for you to to not be defined that way? Like, what's the practical implication of that? Yeah, I mean, I resonate with a lot of what you're saying, and I feel like um, my commitment to not being defined as a murderer functions on, on three levels, and I'll start, with, I'll start with something close to the one you offered. I think that one of the more valuable things that happened to me while I was in prison is I became a writer and I became a father. And those two things became my identity to the point where, like, I would literally have conversations with myself and others, uh, especially when it came to prison rules and prison politics. Like, you know, you know, you got to do this thing. Those are the rules of prison. And that, that identity as a father and that identity as a writer gave me the actual strength to say, like, no, fuck that shit. No. Mm. I know those are prison rules and I'm not going to live like I'm in prison. I refuse to live like I'm in prison. That was not moral courage. That was like, I needed that to be sane. I needed that to feel like I had a chance of one day going home and being a father to my kid. And I had resolved within myself that I'm not really super clear about how I'm going to get out of prison. You got to understand, when I, was, <laughs> when I got sentenced to 67 years to life in California, what tough on crime meant in California was that like, there were people who'd been in prison with five years to life when I went to prison who had been in prison for 20 years and they hadn't killed anybody. Right. Right. Like the, pro- the grant rate of life or parole in California when I was convicted was like maybe less than one percent. Right. It was definitely less than four percent. And if the people who were granted parole, the governors would revoke 80 percent of them. So less than one percent of people were found suitable who had life sentences. And of that less than one percent, 80 to 90 percent of them had it revoked by the governor. That's what tough on crime meant in California. And so I was very reasonable for me to feel like I'm not quite sure how this is going to happen, right? (laughs) But I do know that if it is going to happen, I got to be ready for it. If it is going to happen, I've got to behave in a way that makes that possible. And so those two identities helped me to resist prison politics because I became something more than a than a prisoner or a criminal or this identity that you say that, well, if you're this, then like, that's what, that's what you act like. The thing that I want to like share with the people is like, how dare you, right? Is that, look, 
that's not a place I came to overnight, right? Like I wasn't 20 years old talking about like, I'm not a murderer, right? I wasn't even 30 years old talking about I'm not a murderer, right? I'm 42 and 40, I'm like 43 years old. And it took me a long time to come to a place where I could one, forgive myself and two, recognize that hating myself was not the answer to doing a heinous act. And in fact, was a bit of a diversion and a scapegoat because you know I, I know a lot of people spend a lot of time feeling guilty about things and there's a way in which we can become comfortable in that this is like my punishment this is my penance you know what I'm saying feeling mm. like shit and 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 saying that I'm not shit right but what does it look like to actually try to make amends I am under no illusions right I cannot make amends to the man I killed I cannot make amends to his family. And that still needs to be a North Star, right? In my world, in my life, what what I feel like. And so I can spend my time hating myself or I can spend my time helping to create a world where little kids don't kill other little kids. And that requires a different orientation. That's why it's very important to me. And, you know, I get it. I get why you would say, bro, who the fuck are you to say I'm not a murderer or don't call me a murderer, right? I get it, man. I get it. But I respectfully disagree with you. And I say that, you know, if you like, there's the tendency to feel like you're trying to get over, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, uh, you know you're kind of less well, That's quite convenient, Emil. You don't consider yourself a murderer, right? And I got to say, like, that's for the proverbial you to hold. That's not for me to hold. I feel really solid about my own integrity. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about it is just the simple, that, that vision you just drew, like to me was amazing because what it says is if you want to be the person who helps little kids not kill other little kids, defining yourself as a murderer makes that a lot less likely than if you have actually learned to love yourself, learned to forgive yourself and overcome that limiting identity. That, and that's just, it's just true. You know, people who, who feel that about themselves and who are still hating themselves in that way, it's, it's very unlikely that they're going to make a difference in the way that you want to. Yeah, so beautifully said. I'm jumping in here now, having been off of most of this conversation due to Wi-Fi issues, but <laughs> there's something really there that I like is that there's, it, it's not that you're like bypassing the identity of a murderer, that what that's something that you've done. It's like, in, in some sense, teaching kids not to murder involves being, hey, look, I am somebody who is murdered. I am in that regard, a murderer. And that's not the only thing I am. That doesn't entirely define me. There's still freedom to be had in who I am and how I show up in the world, regardless of what I've done in my past. You know, it's not this, oh, I'm not a murderer. That was just, that wasn't even me. That was just some other, some other thing that I'm dissociated from and don't hold me accountable for those actions. It's just, yeah, I am all of me. I'm all of my actions and I am everything beyond that as well. Yeah, absolutely. This isn't a conversation about like, I'm not accountable for killing a man. I am accountable for killing a man. I will always be accountable for killing a man, whatever the consequences of that are, whether that's someone killing me one day because they feel like you killed this person who was important to me. Like for me, that's like, that can happen. Those are kind of the consequences of killing somebody. So like, that's like, you know, you got to live with that, but like take a different parallel, take someone who's not me, right? There's this practice in uh, in prison in the name of accountability of like always leading with like, this is the crime I committed and I'm sorry. 
right? And I can see why in a world where people are struggling to even come to terms with like, hey, I did a horrible thing, right? I can see why someone could be like, we need this extreme practice in order to assure ourselves that this person is actually feeling remorseful for this thing they did. But I think that like goes off the track because who do you know? Who in this world do you know who introduces themselves with the worst thing they've ever done? You don't. There's only a certain, uh, I'll say, class of people that we expect to do that, right? But like, that's I how think, I introduced you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> shame on you, Brett. Shame on you. Right? <laughs> yeah, and 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 if you define yourself by like, if you're well, the things that we're ashamed of are the things that we recreate in our lives, and so I think it's great. It's like where where do you allow the empowerment of accountability to be there without the the recursive nature of shame. How do you allow someone to like be fully accountable, feel sorry, forgive themselves, love themselves, get over it. And when does somebody's need society's need prisons need for you to feel shame actually get in the way of that? I think is, is the thing that I imagine you've been wrestling with for a long time. There's one other thing I've got to say. You said something about prison politics in there that I just have to say, because we have a lot of professionals listening to this. It's, you were talking about how I am not going to be, I'm not going to do prison politics because if I do, if I, if I follow the rules of this prison, I will do, be defined that way. And I, and I can't do that because then I won't be able to be a dad. Then I won't be able to be um, a writer and the, the things that I want to be in this world. I just want to know if you are at right now at home and you are in an office and you're playing office politics, the same is true for you. If you are in that office and you are obeying rules that don't work for you, it is stopping you from being the father, the mother, the person that you want to be. And if it's possible for a man to not play by the politics of prison, it's definitely possible for you not to play by the politics of some office in Silicon Valley. So I just want, I needed to point that out there because that is a truth that I see so many people wrestle with and never really get the kind of clarity on that you did. That is such a powerful parallel. And um, I just want to know if we have time for one more digression related to that. I talk to people about solitary confinement in prison sometimes. Right. And like most people can see, like, I mean, the science backs of this, like one of the worst forms of, of torture that are available to humans. And so most people can see the problem with solitary confinement. But what I'd like them to understand, it was like, you know, it's a different scale, but solitary confinement is not different from prison. It's just like more severe than the general conditions of prison. And the thing that I would say that would link to what you said is much of what's happening in prison, which is why I'm an abolitionist, right? Because I think it's actually what the world needs. It's what society needs, right? Much of what happens in prison is paralleled also in society in workplaces like that. Think about prison as a mechanism of disposability. And then think about how many people feel in an office. Something really funny, like, you know, when you go to prison, like, you know, this, that's a lot of trauma and shit. And anyone who leaves prison after 21 years needs some therapy. They need some help, right? And like, I have all kinds of therapists, different kinds of therapists from like couples therapists to therapists to somatic generative somatic therapists to like <laughs> sex therapists. Like I need them all. Right. But something funny that I have found now, I know a lot of people in a lot of different circles, whether in tech, whether in philanthropy, whether in the nonprofit, everyone is trying hard to heal from trauma in their life. And I'm like, wait, 
And that, like, it's different details, but there's something very similar about my healing journey and the healing journeys of many people around me who have seen nothing of, like, what I have seen. And that tells me something. It's like, why is that? Why we're like, why, why, how is that so? Right? <laughs> and that's because these things are parallel. These are, like, the, this, these systemic issues that we're talking about, like, they infect all of our institutions, whether it's a corporate office, whether it's college, whether it's law school, whether it's prison. And what you can learn from what's wrong with prison is something you can actually learn about what's wrong with the society we live in. When I was in my 20s and early 30s, I was in this men's group and we would get together every Wednesday for about three hours and we would talk about our journeys, our healing journeys, our spiritual journeys. And I remember there was this woman who wrote um, something called the vagina monologues. I don't, I can't remember her name, but she had this PBS special that was called what I want my words to say to you. Mm -hmm. And in it, she basically took women in maximum security prison. And one of them was famous. Even I think the woman who like cut off the Johnson of one of her of her boyfriends or something, Babbitt, or I can't remember, but something like that, right? And she was doing the work with them in this prison, and they were sharing these stories. And I remember going, these women who have, most of them murderers, and now I'm thinking about the way that I just said that, most of them had committed murder, and they were going through the same stuff we were going through. Like, their stories were a little bit different, but their journeys, their healing journey, it was all the same. It was there. And I remember just being blown away by it. It shook me that there was really no difference between what they were doing and what we were doing. Yeah. And I, I remember like that, that moment for me was one of the more profound moments of that year was just like, Oh yeah, this is this, we are all in this together. Yeah. Okay. So we are on your first relationship with fear is now changing into your second. Cause at the beginning you were like, there's three, your fear had kind of three different steps to it. The first one was overcome it and make it violent and so that you don't have to feel it. And then you're in prison and it's changing. Yeah. And it was like endure it. It, ca it came to like the first stage was endure it. But part of that was it wasn't yet at a place of courage, the act of you feel fear, but you're going to do the thing you know to be right. You might be wrong about that, but you're going to do the thing you know to be right or believe to be right, or at least try to do it. For me, it was just like, you know, it was rooted in a deep sense of self-loathing. So I didn't really care about my life. So it was like, I'm not going to do this other thing and I'm going to be afraid, but like, you know, I'm not going, I'm going to like still do the right thing. And if that doesn't work out and someone kills me, okay. I mean, that's, 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 that's okay. Like I, I, I deserve it. Right. You know, I killed a man. So like, you know, someone should kill me. And so <laughs> I've never heard that. That one's blowing my mind. Like what's interesting is that the there's a freedom in what you you found a freedom that was basically like I deserve it which allowed you to be fearless. That just blows my mind a bit. What an interesting like way to turn guilt into freedom. Like to turn shame and guilt into freedom. Fascinating. Yeah, and and it was like a doorway to accountability. I wouldn't advocate that like that's the healthy way to deal with your guilt, right? It just, that, that's what I mean by I got lucky. There's a way in which like the things that were happening for me coalesced in a way that allowed me to that gave me the space and the time to help myself and to expand my imagination because I wasn't doing the right thing exactly for the right reasons, but I was doing the right thing, and that showed me that more was possible. Yeah. Then I came to get to full kind of engagement of fear as like, oh, everyone feels fear. 
that's like really normal. That's really human. There's no way you will ever like escape that, right? But what you can choose is how what you choose in the face of fear. And that is what virtue is. And like at the time I was reading a lot of like Greek philosophy and stuff like that. And so I was like, oh, in fact, I think that, yeah, this came like I was reading the dialogues of Plato and they were talking about like the virtues and courage and like all these things. And I was like, oh, okay. And like, I'm a kid. Like I haven't heard these things before. I'm like 19. I'm like, this sounds good. I like this. Right. And I was like, okay. So like, it's about having the moral courage to do what you believe is right, even when you're afraid. And then that yeah. became my relationship to fear for a very long time. That that was uh, my relationship to fear. Uh, I think until the time I got out of prison, uh, and it like changed, and it had like its different manifestations. Like there was a time where like I was afraid, I'm running straight towards it, right? Which I don't advise, right? I just like you know because this is and this is less in the realms of like surviving in prisons and more in terms of like personal relationships, interpersonal fears, right? Like I'd be afraid, so I would just like dive into it, right? And then like this is only recently like my relationship to fear and like emotions in general have changed, and that like. At the time, fear was still like a bad thing, right? It was something that I felt like was something that was apart from me. It was something that I had to like conquer in some way. And like the first stage of my relationship with it was like conquering it in the most like irresponsible way possible. Uh, and like the idea of like courage was a way of conquering it uh, with something that felt like integrity. But what I actually came to find that like, no, 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 fear isn't something like separate from me. It's not my enemy right? It's like something I learned in somatic therapy. It's like the things that's like the things that you do, even the things that kind of make you feel shame, whether it's like, you know, maybe you have attachment issues and you fall in love really easy uh, and you feel ashamed about that. Or maybe uh, you don't let people in. And like, so you're like, you're very guarded, like any number of like habits that like we are working through as we heal and try to come and become our best human beings. Something that I learned in somatic therapy is like, look, the body is smart. Think about where you learn that, right? And in, and for me, the conversation is all often like in the context of prison, like let's be real about what that environment is. And in that environment, all these things that you're ashamed of, can't you see how smart actually your body was? <laughs> like, how, do you think you could have survived that if your body didn't develop these mechanisms, if your body didn't develop these habits? So it's not about like demonizing these parts of you that you want to get rid of or feeling like they're holding you back. They've actually saved your life, right? They've, often, they've actually made it possible that, so that you are a sane human being, that most people meet you and they can't even tell you've been in prison. Your friends tell you all the time that like, man, sometimes I'm sorry, I have to actually remind myself of the trauma you carry because you can, you can easily fool yourself into just thinking, Emil has it all together, he's fine because you present that well. Right. And that is part of the mechanisms that your body has created for you to survive. Now, let's honor that. Let's say thank you. Now, here's the thing about bodies. They tend to find something that works and they use it for everything. Right. And so it's like, <laughs> you know, maybe <laughs> you can just use this when you need it and not use it when you don't. So that's the thing that you want to learn in somatic therapy is like, I want a choice about the mechanisms my body employs to protect me, not a default, right? And so that began my relationship with understanding fear as a, a part of me that I get to love and have compassion for and also collaborate with. Now fear isn't something I overcome. Fear is actually a roadmap for me. 
Fear is a signal that I need to pay attention right now. Fear is a signal that I'm avoiding something right now. And I may need to be careful about how I approach it, right? That, that doesn't mean like dive into it, but it is signaling something very important to my growth and my spiritual journey that I need to pay attention to. Um, and so now I, I use it like a roadmap. It's like, oh, I feel nervous about that. Okay, what's going on with that? What's, what's beneath that? What's happening for you? What is, it that's, what is it that's crying out to be healed in this moment? What is it that's crying out to be taken, taken care of in this moment? Yeah, I find in my own journey and in the journey of people that I get to witness and experience is that if you're on a quest for a deeper understanding or awakening or anything, whatever words you want to use for that, that in, even in meditation, if you're in like deep meditation, following the roadmap of fear is one of the most direct lines to finding the truth of who you are, finding the truth of your identity. Like I remember at the beginning of my meditations, I would like not want to feel the fear. And so I was meditating to manage that emotion. And by the time I was finished, not, well, not that I'm ever finished, but the time that like where that journey ended for me of like of looking for s something that was me, when that ended, it was I was just following fear. It was like the direct, like going right into the abyss every time and finding out that that thing that I was most scared of is actually where I find my deepest truth. So for me, when I get fear, when I feel fear, when fear moves, I'm just like you, very excited to like, oh, great, there's some good information here. There's something to pay attention to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's something really interesting that you said about about not diving all the way into it. And I think there's there's times where diving into it is great. And there's also a way that we can build an identity, me speaking as a base jumper here, of diving into the thing that's that's most scary. And then that can be something that becomes less free. Where, you know, I see a bunch of things in my life and one of the things is the most scary. And then I'm like, well, that's the one that I gotta dive into. And there can be a way that I become attached to, to being the identity that dives into certain kinds of fears. And then I'm actually ignoring a whole bunch of the rest of the fears. And then I'm like, why do I keep recreating all these worst case scenarios when I do all this work on myself to accept the worst possible outcome? And it's like, oh, wait, I've actually done all the work to accept that worst outcome. And I haven't accepted the subtle, small fears of actually taking any different path than going into that one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, first of all, like the human brain and the body, like, like, like we are, we are like some brilliant creatures and there are ways in which we can fool ourselves even by doing the right thing. Because it's like, I'm doing the right thing, right? But there's ways that we can focus so deep on that, that we can ignore all the things that we're hiding from. <laughs> mm, that's awesome <laughs> oh. all right well i don't even know where we are anymore <laughs> i know i want the I, I know i want the conversation to keep going but i don't know where where it's going well i mean we've talked about like my three different relationships to fear right and like we've reached that third one of like it's a roadmap like it's a it's a partner in this life as our you know all of our feelings and our emotions right it's like they're partners in this life right that we walk with instead of running from or running through or pushing over or, or hiding from. It's just like, you know, give all of your parts that space, that room to be and love them, right? Just like, you know, like, you know, all, your parts are acting because they love you, right? Um, so love them, right? And also like, you know, I have conversations with my body, my heart, uh, my mind, my fears all the time. And it's like, look, man, I want to name that, like, you know, I'm unhappy with what's going on here, but I love you. And 
Like, can you trust me? Can you trust me to take care of this? This is what I'm going to do. Will you trust me to take care of it? If you can't trust me, that's good. We'll, we'll, we'll work it out. I still love you, right? But can you give me a chance? You'd be surprised. Though. Like, you know, people might think like, man, that sounds pretty crazy. But you would be surprised, <laughs> right? Of just like it, it giving yourself the time of day, giving your feelings, giving your body the time of day to acknowledge and say that you matter, how much space that creates for you to move through them. I have a question for you. So I have a saying. It says, Joy is the matriarch of a family of emotions, and she won't come into a house where her children aren't welcome. And it basically is saying, Yeah, <laughs> that is so good. That's a great reaction. <laughs> yeah, that was a great... <laughs> and that's what I'm wondering if you can relate to that. Like, as you learn to love all these parts of yourself, do you find your life becoming more joyful? Absolutely. I have, I mean, I've never. I've never thought about it. I've never had it phrased that way, but it like perfectly encapsulates what I feel like I'm trying to do and what I'm discovering. And like, as I discovered more and more heights of like peace and happiness, even in conflict, right? Like Mm -hmm. in the last couple of weeks, like, you know, I've had like a lot of conflict in my life and I have felt very much at peace and very much like in feeling like, you know, conflict usually is a thing that makes me feel insecure. Like, you know, I come from a place where conflict often means death, right? So like even small amounts of conflict have been known to make me super anxious, right? To make me unable to settle into my body because it's just like, I can't miss anything and I got to know everything because if I don't, I could be in danger. But I've been finding this place where it's like, I'm really at, I'm at much more peace in conflict and I'm happy and I have a, a shit ton of faith that this conflict is only going to work towards my growth and the growth of the people I'm in conflict with. And that is a powerful source of joy, yeah. right? To just be like, wow, like I'm adulting. I'm doing this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, again, I want to just say how similar that is to a lot of the people that I coach, right? They, these are high powered people in charge of billions of dollars, thousands of people. And that whole idea of like constantly having to uh, track the environment for the potential conflict that's coming, the anxiety that runs their life, looking for all the ways that it could go wrong, and their journey f- from that to, oh, I can, I can trust myself and I can trust that every adversity that comes my way makes me stronger and it and it's an opportunity to be more connected with myself and more connected with the people around me, more connected with the my mission and what I want to do in the world. And it, I mean that's the the same story for the ones that are lucky enough to make that journey instead of just constantly be in the fear and anxiety of the perpetual attacks of a of a capitalistic, you know, system and a, a business system. Yeah. I'm not saying it's bad or good for that. I'm just saying it's just the nature of it. It's competitive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What a pleasure. What a pleasure. Oh my goodness. This yeah. is like what an uh, absolute delight of my of my week. Thank you. I'm so glad that you spent time talking to us. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much, Emil. Thank you, man. I was a little nervous coming on because I was like, you know, I, I looked at your podcast, like, this is kind of a big deal, right? Like <laughs> so I was <laughs> and I feel like I thought, you know, I talk to people all the time, right? Like I'm a public speaker, I'm on panels, I I give talks, I do workshops. And I'm never not nervous before, and I'm okay with that. I feel like that's also part of, uh, that's a different kind of fear that I've actually developed, like a kind of pleasurable relationship to that's just about like 
being really high functioning, right? But and not like ha- hamstrung by fear, but like motivated by it. Letting it be your aliveness. Yeah. 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 In the Jewish tradition, there, I just learned this somewhat recently that they don't have a word for fear, they have two words for fear. And one word is kind of means the fear of existential life of like you're, you're threatened. Right. And the other fear is the fear of stepping into a room that's bigger than you're used to. It's like being on stage. It is growing into something that you're being asked to grow into or, or to be the person you're being asked to be that you haven't been yet. And they have different words for it, which I just think is, I love that. I think that's super useful. Cause like, I mean, I haven't thought about fear in a long time, but I started thinking about it uh, for the show. And I was thinking, I was like, you know, that fear that I'm talking about, like the one that I had different relationships to, I feel like there's another brand of fear that's like kind of different than that, right? And it's like, I'll end with a quick story and this is the kind of fear it is. And it's not a fear I want to ever avoid. This is like clearly my friend and like is the thing that keeps us like living and keeps us alive. Um, Last year, I drove across the country and back and like, uh, I was coming back and I was coming through the Rockies and I was like driving through like my sixth snowstorm in the Rockies, which is pretty intense. It's just it's kind of an intense experience. Oh, yeah. um, and so like, I'm like, got my high beams on. Uh, I get out of the Rockies. I'm in Utah. Speed limit in Utah is like 80 miles an hour. So I'm like 100 miles an hour. I think the speed limit is actually 90 miles an hour. Right. But I'm like, just like, I'm gone. I'm like down the freeway. It's two o'clock in the morning. There's really no one on the freeway, which is why I forgot my high beams were on. So I'm driving down this kind of like back road in Utah, like a hundred miles an hour and like a fucking Honda, Honda Civic. And ahead in the road, there's a boulder. Like there's no hills, right? So it's not like it fell down a hill, right? Maybe it fell off a truck or there's some crazy ass serial killer just putting boulders on the road, right? But the boulder's <laughs> about as high as my waist, maybe a little lower, maybe my thighs, right? And... I barely see it, right? And I say that to mean that, like, if I hadn't forgotten those high beams, I would have certainly been dead. Because when I swerved, I barely missed it. But I'm going so fast that when I swerved, like, the car is going out of control. And, like, there's no brakes at 90 miles an hour. Like, you might, you kiss it goodbye. You decide you're going to try to hit brakes at 90 miles an hour, right? So I'm, like, turning into it. And I'm, like, fishtailing. And I'm in this complete tailspin. And as all of this is happening... Like, I am feeling no fear in the traditional sense that, like, I'm not feeling that fear that felt, like, paralyzing that I described my relationship to, right? It's a very different kind of fear because I'm certainly, like, the more alert than I have ever been in my life. And I have never spun out before, right? But I'm remembering everything I have ever heard about spinning out. And then number one was don't hit the brakes. Number two was turn into it, right? And I'm doing it, like, and it's like a fucking movie almost, right? And I am like working this car, this Honda, and I'm like on this two-lane highway, and I'm seeing the front and flashes like voof, 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 voof. And every flash, right, I'm like taking a snapshot, and I'm like, okay, ahead of me, no lights. Okay, I can survive this. And then I see that you're moving to the left, and you're moving off towards the dirt and like this fence that's like a cow pasture fence. And I'm like, okay, if I can stop on the road, great. If I can stop in that dirt, I'm going to probably lose a tire. If I hit that fence, this is done, right? And so I bring the car to a stop, still on the asphalt, facing the other way, smoke everywhere. And then I stop. Then I take a breath. 
then it hits me like, holy shit, that just happened, right? <laughs> but I recognize the feeling of before it happened is the same feeling I've had being shot at, the same feeling I've had with a gun in my face. And having a gun in my face certainly didn't mean that I turn into Captain Commando. I'm like, oh, take the gun. It's like, no, you're robbing me. I'm going to give you this shit, right? But like, there's this feeling, there's this state of intense awareness and activity. And if you decide to move, you move. And it's like, it's like the most high performing that I have ever been like in those situations. And that's actually not a fear that I've ever had a problem with. That's actually a fear that's like, it can only be defined as fear, but it's not that fear that I feel like we've been talking about on this show. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the same kind of fear in, in a base jump where something goes a little bit wrong and all of a sudden you're just present. You're just there. You're not thinking, Oh no, I don't want this fear to be happening. It's just, you're just there and you're, you're acting and it's moving through you and it's energizing. And then, you know, after you get out of the situation, that's when, that's when like the next wave hits and you're just like, Oh my God, that just happened. Oh, holy shit. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Emil. All right, man. You guys take care. Thanks for listening to the art of accomplishment. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe and rate us in your podcast app. We'd love your feedback. So feel free to send us questions or comments. You can reach out to us, join our newsletter, or check out our courses at artofaccomplishment.com. Thank you.